This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes, so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your creativity and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello, welcome to episode two, season two of Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and we've got another great guest who is going to tell you about the pivotal moments in his career. We hope to inspire and entertain you. So this week's guest is chief sports writer for the Mail on Sunday, Oliver Holt. He's covered some amazing sporting events from the Olympics to Football World Cups to Wimbledon to Grand Prix, loads of them. But how did he get to do the job he loves? Thank you, Oliver, for inviting me into your lovely home, building work next door. I know, no, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's, um, it's part of the North Oxford thing, I think, building work going on everywhere. It but, is, yeah. it is. I wanted to ask you, I mean, your job fascinates me, and apologies because I probably don't know enough about it, but to start with, what came first for you? Was it sport or was it writing, your love of it? I think it was sport, actually. I, I, um, I mean, I, I always loved playing football, and then when I um, got into my teens, my sort of young, when I was 13, 14, um, I, I started going to watch football a lot, and I went with, I went to watch Manchester City and Manchester United on, in those days you could just turn up and queue at the gate, and then I when I was about 13, I discovered Stockport County as well, which was my local team. I grew up in a, well, in a village called Aldley Edge, which is a kind of commuter village south of Manchester. Uh, but my dad's from Stockport, and I persuaded him to take me to a couple of Stockport County games. Stockport County played on a Friday night. And before I knew it, I was going to sort of 80 games a season, just as a spectator with City United and Stockport. And that was, you know, that was the main thing in my childhood in many ways was was watching football so I think that came first um, and did you think hang on a minute is there any way I can do this all the time did that dawn on you at that time do you think I want to be here all the time it didn't really I don't think at that time I think the kind of thing that did occur to me and which still I have to say still occurs to me now is I, I love tennis as well so I, we, we lived opposite a tennis club um, in Aldley Edge and I play I practically lived at the tennis club in the summers I remember watching Wimbledon on the TV and thinking, the men's final in particular, thinking that that was an impossible dream ever to go to a Wimbledon men's final, say. Um, and that, you know, how, how did you get, how could you possibly ever get a ticket for that? And so... Marry a royal? Yes, exactly. That kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. It was for other people, really, I think. And then... I've been to quite a few Wimbledon finals now, and I, I have to say I still... I still do pinch myself. It's the it's the one thing I think that I still pinch myself when I'm at, on centre court, and I do I do remember what it was like watching as a kid and thinking that only special people went to that, and thinking that actually this is 
a, a real perk of the job to be able to go to the Wimbledon men's final. And get paid for it as well. Yeah, well, exactly. As, Double as, money. As people never cease to remind you on Twitter, do you actually get paid for writing this <laughs> drivel or whatever? But unfortunately for you, yes. And do you go to Stockport County and write about it, or is that too difficult because you're too close? No, you know what? It's actually quite a nice cop out for me, Stockport County, because I never, because they're very lowly side and have got lowlier and lowlier, <laughs> really. Then it doesn't really impact. Nobody can accuse me of favouritism when I write about them because I never write about them. So, <laughs> you know, I think some of my colleagues maybe have that issue. Quite a lot of my colleagues seem are West Ham fans, a few sort of up in the north Liverpool fans. Um, so I think. You know, that can be an issue for them to be uh, accused, at least, of being biased. But it's never really an issue for me because Stockport don't come into the equation very much. So you spent your childhood doing a lot of tennis, doing a lot of uh, football watching. Mm. And then then you went to do history here in Oxford. Yes, I did. I did. Which is quite a a different different take because, you know, I suppose doing journalism... It's, it's something that's quite when you do it at an early stage I guess you really sort of set your which direction you're going in but did you decide I'm going to keep my options open at that stage I, I wasn't really um, thinking about it that much I, I have to say I was I, I, I was never a, I mean I am I, I am now but I was never a planner then <laughs> I was I was never one of those kids who had their career mapped out in front of them I didn't do any student journalism actually I was quite a shy kid and and so actually I really I kind of university for me here in Oxford was I mean it was great but it was a social it was mainly as it was the ma- massive benefit of it for me I think was a social thing I I absolutely loved it I made a lot of friends great friends who I still have now and socially it was terrific for me I played a lot of sport I was the you know I played for the college football team tennis team hockey team even you know, loved it. Absolutely got, got, loved got, it. Got your confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I came, I, the, the thing that university did for me, I came out of it much more confident person than I had been before. And I think one of the things about going to Oxford, possibly Cambridge as well, I don't know, is that rightly or wrongly, it, 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 it gives you maybe a confidence you don't kind of deserve because you think even if you, even if things go badly, you might still flute your way in somewhere because you've got that behind you mm. and so I don't know if that's an arrogant maybe it can quite easily bleed into a kind of arrogance but anyway it it made it gave me a confidence that I hadn't had um, before I arrived and I didn't do any student journalism and sometimes I shudder a little bit about that because I think that that could quite easily have gone wrong because I think nowadays in particular you you know when I see students applying to uni- to newspapers and um, for grad schemes and that kind of thing. I mean, their CVs are often amazing. I mean, the level of commitment that they've shown for a long time. Juggling you know, it with their degree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, and I know that that's what bosses look for. And, you know, I've got friends who are in positions of seniority, I suppose, now at newspapers in particular. And, and you know, I know that that's what they look for, and so I shudder sometimes to think of the lack of the lack of experience I showed I had. But I, I didn't do anything when I was at university. But then I, um, I managed to managed to squeeze onto a, a postgraduate diploma course in Cardiff 
um, a journalism course there, which which has a broadcast element as well. It has a broadcast in those days. It had broadcast magazines and um, newspapers and. Again, these things have proliferated now, but in those days, the two best ones were City University and Cardiff, and I got rejected from City, but I managed to squeeze into the Cardiff one, and actually that that was, um, I mean, I hesitate to say the making of me, but the, makes, the making of me as a journalist, I love, I, you know, I, I, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left university. I applied for a couple of advertising jobs, mainly because most of my friends were doing that kind of advertising was big in the 80s. When, <laughs> and then I got onto this course in Cardiff and it, it was it was brilliant. I mean, it was like learning a new language because I, I went into it thinking that journalism was essay writing, basically. And I thought I'd write for The Independent or The Guardian or Telegraph or something. And, and then... We had a, a teacher who was a former tabloid journalist who used to work for the Mirror, actually, and he he was very harsh. Our stuff would come back in with scribble, you know, just red marks all through it. And I remember some stuff on my on written that he'd written on my one of my efforts at a news story, saying, "Is this journalism?" Question mark. I don't think so. <laughs> just empty word spinning and. <laughs> So that was quite, a, it was quite a steep learning curve. But it didn't make you want to give up? It didn't, actually. No, it didn't make me want to give up, and I, I loved it. it. So it was like learning, a, a, he taught me, amongst many things, this Alan Coles, who was called, one of the things he taught me was um, economy of language, you know, about writing for a newspaper, and particularly a tabloid newspaper. Don't waste words. You know, he held up the sun, for instance, as an example of economy of language and good journalism, and I coming from university where even in the 80s you know people looked down on the sun a little bit as a you know really not the kind of thing you should be reading he held it up as a journalistic example which I found quite interesting and I suddenly began to appreciate the the use of different way of using language and Mm. and not wasting words and the importance of space and that kind of thing um it's a real art, isn't it? And for somebody like me who who knows not a huge amount about it, but we just read it. But you're mm. right, if there's too many words in there, we probably get a bit bored and there's not enough space anyway. So it's it's something that you probably changed your whole writing style, I imagine there. I did. Yeah, yeah I, t- I I I really I I totally changed it to the point where in a little bit later when I joined the Times, I'd worked on a couple of tabloid papers in Liverpool, The Echo and The Daily Post, which were both tabloid format. I actually found it then found it very hard to switch back to the times where, you know, you could had a little bit more the same principles applied, but you had a little bit more license to write. And I found I found I'd got so used to the different language really of tabloid papers that I found it quite difficult to switch back. But um, yeah, I found it fascinating. And when you move from different papers, because you you've been like you say you started in regional and then you you mm. you went to Fleet Street. How does that work then? Do you uh, get a call from somebody saying, I've read this and I'd like you to work for us? Or do you <laughs> hammer down their door? How did the different jobs come about? Or was it, was it different, everyone? Yeah, it's a bit different. I think when, I, when you're older, maybe people tend to approach you a bit, a bit more. But when I was... So I worked in Liverpool. I went to the Daily Post and Echo as a trainee um, in the late right at the end of the 80s and I worked there for three years and it was a great scheme you know worked across I was a sub um, on both the papers and 
across various departments. Um, it was the very end of hot metal in newsrooms, which have a long, long gone now. But <laughs> so you'd actually lay out the page on a on a board, and that was fascinating. It was a fascinating sort of education, really. But yeah, I, after three years of doing that, and three years of doing, you know, the usual stuff, council council meetings. I did a few. I don't know if you've ever done any of these things, but we call them death knocks, but they're... Tell me. Yeah, I, I only did a couple, but it stayed in my mind. Newspapers, you know, obviously news is stuff that's unusual, basically. So um, quite often one of one of the ways that you find news, I mean, newspapers have diff- uh, tried and trusted means of doing this, and one is, the, is death notices in, in the paper. So... If there was something unusual, um, particularly I suppose if a, if it was a, a child who died or something, was, that was likely to be a, a news story of some sort, unfortunately. And quite often actually one of the things you found in Liverpool was that the families would welcome you into the home in that kind of, because the echo was so, in particular, was so well respected in the city. And But at this particular occasion, um, there was a, a child who had been playing in a culvert underneath their sort of little tunnel underneath the M53 motorway in on the Wirral near Birkenhead somewhere been playing with some of uh, his friends and I think they'd lit a fire of some sort under the thing anyway this poor child had suffocated or some accident had befallen him and he, he died and um, the Echo, I was working for Daily Post News at that point, the Echo sent their best reporter around in the morning, a woman called Caroline Storer, who was a great reporter, and she got sort of chased down the drive by the mother the, of this kid who died. And so the my boss said, well you've got to go up there this afternoon for the Daily Post. And I was thinking, okay, well, I knew that Caroline had been sent away with a flea in her ear, understandably, in some ways. So I remember getting the taxi up there and um, sitting at the end of the road in the taxi and thinking, actually, maybe I'll just just not get out of the taxi say and I come tried. home and say I tried. Yeah. And, and I thought, in many ways, that would be also the decent thing to do because of the situation that this poor family had found themselves in but then also professionally I thought okay well I ought to I ought to do it and so I went and I said to the the woman answered the door and she had you know she obviously looked like she'd been crying um for quite a long time and she had huge rings under her eyes and um anyway I said to her look if you if you speak to me nobody else will you know, nobody else will bother you. I know somebody came around from the Echo today and um, and she let me in and we, we chatted for sort of five or ten minutes and um, she gave me a photo of her uh, little boy which is kind of, um, for news desks, is kind of gold, mm. you know. And I remember getting back to the office and I, I don't think... I don't think before or since anybody has ever been as pleased with me as they were for that getting that sort of sit down and that, or that talk and the, and the picture. But it left, you know, I, I don't, I, I, it would leave a mark with anybody. But it left. It, I, I didn't really, I didn't really want to do that kind of stuff. 
you know, I found it difficult from an emotional point of view and I found it difficult. Um, I suppose it would be a little bit pretentious to say difficult from an ethical point of view because that's just part of the job. But I, I didn't really, I didn't really want to do that. I was starting to get a little, I didn't really want to do council meetings for much longer in my career. And as I, in tandem with doing the news reporting, I'd been working in my, one of the great things about Liverpool was you could work in the different departments in your spare time. So I'd been doing a lot of sport. I'd been doing the matches that other people, so the, the, we had one chief football writer on the Daily Post, Phil McNulty, who you mm. may know, mm. who lives here in Oxford now. And so Phil would do whatever the best game of the weekend was, either Liverpool or Everton, and I would do the one that he didn't. I'd do the one that he didn't want to do. And so I managed to get a few cuttings, I suppose, together of match reports and things. And going back to your original question, after about three years, I began to sort of think about moving on or think if I could move on and um, getting closer to that Wimbledon final yes exactly <laughs> yeah well, I'm actually I, that was the first time I managed to get to Wimbledon at all because we, there was a kid called Shirley Ann Siddle who um, was <laughs> who had been born in Bootle which is on Merseyside and so I managed to get um, on local the, connection on the, yeah Bootle born <laughs> always prefaced it with Bootle born <laughs> Shirley Ann Siddle, um, and that, yeah, that was my first sort of opportunity to get to Wimbledon. But um, so uh, you kind of you, you you gathered experience and you gathered pieces, and yeah. then kind of managed to move away from the council and the yeah difficult, more difficult stories. I'm not saying sports stories can't be difficult, but yeah, but um, no, I, did, I You know what? I didn't really move away from them, and but when I was in Liverpool, but I I I started sending them off to sports desks. The sports stuff that I'd written, I started sending off to sports desk. I decided I want to do sport rather than news. And gradually I began to get a few little bites from people. I did a few subbing shifts in London on the Times, actually, which I thought I felt out of my depth. The subs on the Times in news, actually, again, were just so brilliant that I thought, this is, these guys are way out of my league. Um, <laughs> but I, I got a... As everybody needs, really, I suppose we all need. I got a bit of a lucky break, and that this I did a couple of. Well, I sent my stuff off to Times Sport, and they got a new editor, and he made some changes. So there was some movement. There was some movement. Exactly. Always helps when there's a new boss in town, yeah, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Quick, get in there. Well, exactly. There was some movement, and so the new boss you know, was actually one of the guys that I've remained grateful to for the, you know, rest of my life, the rest of my career. And, and uh, they had a motor racing correspondent who was a very good motor racing correspondent, but, but was very much into the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of motor racing. It was a, he was an, you know, a motor expert. And they wanted somebody who was more into the human interest side of motor racing and the personalities, etc. And so even though I knew nothing really about motor racing or Formula One, I got a job as the um, Formula One correspondent for the Times for, or motor racing correspondent for the Times in, that was in 1993. So suddenly from a job, you know, where a, a work trip meant going to a, I don't know, old people's home in Birkenhead or something, I was, the first job I did for the, the first job I did. You didn't did, go to Monaco, did you? But, no, the first trip I did for the Times 
was I went to the South African Grand Prix, <laughs> in, which was the opening Grand Prix of the season in 1993. And then from South Africa, went to straight to Australia because Nigel Mansell was, had just moved to IndyCar racing. And even though that was a US-based series, the first race was in Surfers Paradise in, um, on the Gold Coast. So I went from South Africa to there, and then I went from the Gold Coast to um, Sao Paulo for the Brazil, straight from there. So the, basically, it was a kind of round the world trip, all places I'd never been before in my all life. All paid for. All paid for, and yeah, I just thought, yeah, this was kind of this is quite good heaven, basically. And what yeah. did your family think at the time? Because you know, they your mum being an actress, yeah, and uh, dad an engineer. Yes. Yeah, so right, yeah. I mean, look, quite... we, we say an engineer. My wife makes fun of me for this because we always call him an engineer. He was a motor mechanic, basically. But um, <laughs> well, engineer go. sounds quite it like, does. He, like he, built, he built bridges or something. But um... <laughs> but he must have loved it then if he was a motor mechanic and you were at the Grand Prix. He must have uh, yeah. been interested himself. No, he did. He did. I mean, my dad, uh, without boring you too much my dad was more my dad was more of an odd job man really I mean he did he did a bit of he was old school sort of he did a bit of he'd inherited a motor a motor repair garage from his dad in Stockport he did a bit of roofing he did a bit of electrical work he did some he fitted some central heating ducts all that kind of thing so it wasn't like he was a sort of petrol head but nevertheless I mean <laughs> they yeah. must have been proud of you though or, or, or were yeah. they I don't know. How, how do they feel about their son no, I think, writing about sport? No, I think they were. I think they were proud of me. I mean, I felt when I got into Oxford that they, you know, I felt that that I felt, you know, I felt I'd repaid a bit of a debt by doing that. You know, they're always incredibly supportive of me, and my parents, and they never actually, you know, I think it's an interesting thing about parenting. I kind of really try and go watch watch my girls play sport and they never really they never really came to watch me do stuff or but I never I never resented that or felt that they should be there it's funny whereas I kind of feel that I want to support my kids playing sport but I never it didn't matter to me that they didn't come but they're incredibly I think they're incredibly supportive to me in you know, other ways in most they were always you know, they never put me under any pressure or... And they were so, keen for you to do what you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, they That's were. That's a big thing, isn't they it? They were, and I think they were... So I felt... I felt when I got into Oxford that that was a huge thing um, and that they were proud of... Proud of me for. And, yeah, I mean, I think when... You know, when I got a job on The Times, that was great. But they never, they never made it feel like... To be honest, they never made it feel like it was any different to when I was working on the Daily Post or the Echo, really. And um, I think my mum, my mum in particular, now you know likes to get the paper and read the stuff that I've done. And I thought you were going to say get the free Wimbledon tickets. Yeah, well, I have taken her a couple of times actually, which which again is nice because she loved tennis. But but yeah, they they were. They were always very supportive, but never in a particularly um, sort of cloying way. So yeah. I think um, they, you know, they were happy that I was happy. And you talk stuff. about that you really love to go and watch your kids play sport. But I was interested about your working week because Saturday, surely, is not a day to watch your kids play football because you're watching. Yeah. So Saturday must be a mega busy, yeah. busy day. And I was interviewing uh, Rob Walker, who's a 
athletics commentator, and yeah. he had this massive chart on his wall all the time that he's away right. from home, all over the world. Yeah. And you must be, I mean, what's your sort of uh, time here and time away? You must be away a lot. Yeah, I'm away, I'm away a reasonable amount, and I think that, you know, this is not peculiar to me. We, all of us, in whatever walk of life, I suppose, we're in um, struggle with the, the old work-life balance thing. And um, actually, it, it, it's not as bad for me as it used to be in those that respect. Because when I started in motor racing, that was 16, 16 races a year then, so you wait for 16, effectively yeah. 16 weeks. And... I was a lot younger then and those those race weekends were like sort of they were like it was like going on a stag weekend basically every weekend though I, <laughs> I wasn't married when I first started doing it and I'm, I'm talking more about drinking than anything else but it was they were it was a it was quite a small circuit in those days so everybody knew everybody the drivers we got on quite well with drivers so I felt like I needed a rest when I got back from those weekends really um those races it's a single man's job maybe yeah yeah I, Always. Yes, it is. It, well, I think it is. I think maybe maybe you get used to it. You get used to it, perhaps, as you, you learn to. You know, I was a bit giddy. I suppose it was my first my first job and um, in national newspapers. But yeah, I think it would be it would be. Well, it, it, people do it. It's a, but it's a hard job to do. I think um, if you've got a young family, mm-hmm. as is say. Not as hard probably as being a cricket correspondent because mm-hmm. a cricket correspondent away for months at a time, mm. you know, the guys at the moment would be covering the tour of New Zealand, um, be away for a couple of months there, then in the new year they'll be in South Africa. You know, that, those, are, those are hard jobs to manage. Um, Is that why you moved away from motoring then? To, to get something a little bit closer to home? Or did uh, that just I happen think, to I think that was probably... I think that was a part of it, but... I think it was more just the way, just the way the um, the job took me. In that, I suppose realistically, you know, motor racing was incredibly good for me. And, and again, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I was I was lucky in that in that um, when I started doing motor, I started doing motor racing in 1993, and in 1994, Ayrton Senna was killed at Imola, and motor racing. Son of possibly the greatest driver that ever lived or would have been if he'd lived longer. And so motor racing was never higher profile, probably, than it was for those couple of years. And so my career as a journalist benefited from that, I think. And so the natural progression in this country, as you know, is sport is sort of the, is dominated by the tyranny of football. And so as I... Um, as my sort of profile rose, I, I got a couple of job offers from other papers, and the ultimate effect of that was that I was offered the football correspondence job at the at the time, so um, which was a promotion. So um, so I took that, and so that brought me that brought me close to home. That yeah. stopped the travelling, and I think I've never really done as much travelling since as I did when I was doing Formula One. And by the time I left Formula One, I I was married, and my wife. My wife did find that amount of travelling difficult, mm. so um, that kind of was lucky that my career moved the way it did. And now, I still, I do still go away, but it sends a bit of a shiver through me that idea that you might have a chart with how many week, how how much you're away. I mean, I don't think I'm away nearly as much as I used to be, but I'm probably, you know, I've just had 
a month at the Rugby World Cup in Japan. You know, and that, that's the first time I've been away for a long time. Okay. For that long, for a mm. while. And that was, you know, that I was away for five weeks altogether. Um, you know, that's, that's difficult when you've got a kid at school, my wife works. So juggling all that. So when you for come her back. Is, is, I, I, you know, juggling that is difficult for her. Um, and when you come back, you've got to do all the, you've got, there's, you do that school run, you do that pick up. I've got a bit of catching up to do, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But I can do, you know, I mean, as you say, I, uh, again, going back to your original question, I work for a Sunday newspaper now, so... Yeah, so how's your week then? It's unpredictable. Right. Yeah, I mean, some weeks can be very busy, other weeks can be less busy. So, I mean, I've been away for five weeks, so that's that was really busy. Um, most, well, a lot of weeks... I try and do an interview, so you know a lot of it will be trying to set that up, trying to do that, going to do that, have a column to write, and then I always, really always work on a Saturday. So yeah, Saturdays are difficult in terms of, I mean, when I work for a daily paper, I always worked on a Sunday, um, but now I always work on a Saturday. So, so Saturday's better, really, I yeah, think. So yeah. It's, it's, a lot of people work on a Saturday, less so than a Sunday, maybe. Yeah. So you kind of feel... But everyone else is, is doing yeah. it slightly. And, and I've got this impression of life on Fleet Street. And, you know, I, my husband was saying last night about the spitting image puppets. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Drinking. What, the rotters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it like that? Not anymore. No. <laughs> not, certainly not in my experience. I mean, we joke about it. We joke about it a little bit in football. We call people new school and old school. And, you know, old school, I think, when I, when, when I was first started and the older journalists, we'd go out for dinner most nights all together. Um, there was quite a strong drinking culture, quite a strong male drinking culture, I suppose. It was overwhelmingly male. You know, people would drink before matches, that kind of thing. It was just routine. It's, that has changed beyond all recognition now. And, you know, new school, I've sort of crossed over to new school a bit. We go running you know cycling on the yeah a lot of people cycle some people even take bikes with them to wow. on trips but as i say i i run quite a lot um people don't really go out um as a matter of routine for dinners i mean one other thing that's happened is that is that budgets have budgets have shrunk you can't even if you wanted to you couldn't go out every night because you don't have the you don't have the budget um, to do it to entertain people and that kind of thing so and there's things, more women it's just everything well changed. exactly that, yeah. uh, you know and that's that's a hugely positive thing I think and has been I think has been a you know has been a problem unspoken problem in the industry for a long time really and, and there have been so many barriers you know I didn't I was blind to them, I suppose. It's easy for men to be blind to those barriers when you're the, not the one who's having the barriers put in front of you. But mm. um, I've realised more and more how many barriers there have been um, for women. And actually, I think it reached a, a kind of crescendo for me when I, the, I, was, I did the Women's World Cup in the summer in France. And honestly I've not enjoyed myself as much at a tournament for a long time and part of it was because part of it's because of the access was great because it was the Women's World Cup and there's still it's still a growing sport women's football but 
Part of it was because of the journalists that I met there, many of whom I hadn't met before, and many of whom were women journalists, football journalists. And I kind of realised when they were given the platform, you know, just how good they were. Some of them, people like Molly Hudson, who works for the Times, is a very young reporter who works for the Times, Rebecca Myers, who works for the Sunday Times, Claire Bloomfield, who works for the Mail now, was working for the Sun at the time, Susie Rack, who works for the Guardian, Katie Wyatt, who works for the Telegraph, um, Molly McElwee also works for the Telegraph. You know, they, they were they were just first-class journalists, and suddenly, when they were getting a bit of a chance to write, you know, you could think, why haven't they been getting this platform before? You know, and and once they did get the platform, I know that a few of them have had job job offers from other papers since. Some of them have had their contracts improved to sort of staff jobs. It was just. Anyway, a bit late for me, I suppose. I should have realised earlier, but it was just a real lesson for me in how much talent there is out there and how many barriers have been put in the way of mm. Mm. women. Probably won't be a surprise to you, but, um, you know, I think that finally it is beginning to change. Mm. You know, the I've, I'm a member of the Football Writers Association, which most most football journalists are. Our president now, or chair, is a woman for the first time. You know, it wasn't when I first started in when I first started in national newspapers. Women weren't even allowed to come to football writer dinner. You know, that's incredible, isn't it? It yeah. is incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. I mean, it's twenty five years ago now, I suppose. But even so, it does, it feels like it's it feels like that should be ancient history, not twenty five years ago. But anyway, we anyway, I think we are finally we are finally starting to make some progress, and I'm sure. Um, a lot of female journalists would say well yeah at last and probably not enough but I think it is finally beginning to move in the right direction some of those barriers are starting to Mm. come down and and you're saying about all the changes like that but also changes I mean it's changed such a lot since you started out with that you're talking about in the newsroom in Liverpool but with online and do you worry I mean everyone goes oh not everyone but people say, oh, death of print. And does that worry you? And, and do you try and do things like, um, I know a lot of journalists do things like podcasts and yeah. uh, diversify and, and yeah. radio and TV. Do yeah. you think it's going to go? Well, I do think about that a lot. And I, but I, I think I've been thinking about it since I started the newspapers because newspapers have been in decline since, you know, since I started at the Times. Um, you know, you look at circulations of regional papers you know and a lot of regional the, the echoes circulation has gone down and down the daily post which i work for no longer exists um in liverpool not in print form anyway so and going back to what you said about the newsroom when i started in liverpool at the post and echo newsroom was absolutely full of reporters you couldn't get a seat it was a great atmosphere people you know we used to be throwing paper balls at each other it was just a great <laughs> sort of it was great fun now newsrooms a lot of newsrooms are like ghost ships you know there's nobody there and some of it is because the subbing has been um sent out um you know for people to do in in the regions pa to do or whatever um and some of it is just because there aren't as many reporters so i think i've just got used to the idea that that prints 
is in decline, dying, whatever you want to call it. And I think, obviously, the huge battle for newspapers is how it migrates, what, what platform it migrates to. I mean, I think there will always be a demand for the written word. It just depends what platform mm. it's on. Mm. And I think if it, it, the actual physical thing of reading a newspaper may start to well is is in decline whether it will whether it's a terminal decline or whether things whether things will change I don't know and I think that's the thing that newspaper executives wrestle with all the time is how to how to you know should the internet be free should Mm. websites be free should they be paid for I think the times model is proving pretty successful at the moment the mail group obviously has an incredibly successful online operation now and I think at some point Obviously, they hope that advertising online will start to overtake advertising for the newspaper. That's a huge advertising revenue drives things, as you know. So I wouldn't say I bury my head in the sand about it, but I just try and get on with it and and try and do my job as best I can. Um, I'm very lucky at the mail group in that they treat journalists, treat their journalists exceptionally well, certainly I've from my own point of view, they treat me very well. I can't complain at all, and they they invest in journalism. But yeah, I mean, I think that there are there are challenges, and I think that yeah, I do in my mind. I do try. I do have a uh, I do try and diversify a little bit. I'm aware of the importance of, I suppose, the occasional appearances on TV. Um, I think the thing that I've probably done more than anything is I, I, I do, I ghost, I like ghosting autobiographies for sportsmen. Yeah. I've done a few of those. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's a, a really... thing, isn't it? It's a really nice change, that. Yeah. And it's actually one of the things, one of the other ways in which journalism has changed, and I think we, journalists used to be a lot closer to their subjects. Sports journalists used to be a lot closer to their subjects. Um, you know, there'd be more socialising. That's largely stopped now. Mm. More barriers in the way. Writing a book with somebody is a way of, you know, is that actually a way around that? Is a way of really establishing a relationship with somebody as well. So, which was your favourite one to do? Because you've done a few. Yeah, I have. Um, well, I don't know. Whilst I was saying that to you, I was thinking about I. I did a book with Ian Poulter, the golfer, and which in which partly I enjoyed that. He's great, and he's a. I really enjoyed his company, but also I went out to Orlando and spent like 10 days there just going over to see, he lives in Orlando, so going to see him every day, but then being able to sort of chill out there, that was that felt like quite a luxury. I mean, I suppose Neil Warnock, I did Neil Warnock's book, um, the former Sheffield United manager, Cardiff City manager, um, probably about 10 years ago now, but he... One of the great things about doing his book was that he had had a life, you know, he'd had a real life in football. It wasn't like doing a, the autobiography of a 25-year-old yeah. player where it's difficult, you know, to flesh flesh out the word count sometimes. He'd had such a full life in football and he was full of anecdotes. He was a great talker. So I enjoyed doing that. And, and as well as doing that, you talked about your column. Um, you said earlier on that, you you know, you've never been, you weren't that confident to start with, but that but mm. to be a columnist you've got to be really quite a feisty mm. person mm. is that something that has grown as you've got more confident or is, do you think you could have written a column when you were working at the Liverpool Echo no probably not <laughs> not the kind of thing I write now you, you're, you're absolutely right about that and I think that um, I think that particularly when you work on a tabloid 
you I learned when I went to the mirror when I went to the mirror that was the first time I'd, I'd written a column really it was one of the things I wanted to do but I I learned that you can't on a tabloid paper in particular you can't be great you you you've got you can't you can't put one side and then the other you've got to be bang one side right. you know you've got to be either black or white <laughs> and there's no in between and yeah I think that you you have to develop a little bit of a thick skin and particularly I'm, with online and people yeah replying to you on Twitter yeah or do you just replying is a <laughs> replying is a polite way of putting it, it. yeah <laughs> but I think that's I think that's okay I mean I'm not saying that I enjoy um, being abused <laughs> and because I don't really think anybody does and sometimes you know I just won't look at it or I've learned sometimes not to look at stuff before I go to bed because I'll be think I'll be going around my, some hmm. something that somebody said to me you know that might be unpleasant or abusive or whatever it's going around in my head when I'm or was going around in my head when I'm going to sleep so I'm kind of um I've learned to how to manage that but equally I think that if you write a column and you are um espousing you know fairly trenchant views about something you've got to expect that you're going to get particularly in football particularly in football but not just in football but you are which is incredibly tribal you're going to get some fairly um, tasty sort of responses. So you've got, I think that's fine, you know, and I think that Twitter, Twitter can be problematic in some of the abuse that you get, but also there are a lot of very knowledgeable people on Twitter, particularly football fans. Probably gives you inspiration sometimes or ideas. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think it also, it's a bit of a cliche, but it sort of keeps you honest in a way as well. You think, okay, that actually that's right at that point that somebody's made about that that written maybe I didn't think about that carefully enough maybe I haven't watched that player play Mm. as much as this person has maybe I got that wrong and I think it is good it's good from that point of view because I think sometimes in journalism we can exist in a kind of echo chamber where we all talk to each other and Twitter's been a I think in many ways Twitter's been a really positive positive thing Mm. you know it I was talking before about the barriers that can sometimes exist now between journalists and subjects but actually Twitter's broken down some of those you can get in contact with people a bit more easily yeah. than you used to be able to you don't have to get necessarily go through a PR at a club or whatever so yeah definitely yeah and there must be so many sporting moments but this must be one that stands out you know there are a few actually which okay. is boring you can give me a top okay three. okay uh Andy Murray winning Wimbledon yeah. um which first time for the fir- for, for the first time, when it was the first time since Fred Perry had won it in 1936. The first time for 77 years, I think, that a British man had won Wimbledon. That was an amazing thing, to be, an amazing moment to be at. Um, Emotional, everything. Yeah. Just all in one box. <laughs> yes, it was incredible. It was an incredible thing to be at. And as I said, I'd spent a lot of my time as a kid playing tennis yeah. and dreaming about being at Wimbledon, that kind of thing. So that was one... The other two, I think I'd say, I guess, Manchester United winning the Champions League in 1999 when they won the treble and they won it in incredibly sort of dramatic circumstances in Barcelona. Um, That was an amazing moment. And as was Liverpool winning the Champions League in 2005 in Istanbul. One other thing I'd say, I suppose, which is different in a way, but 
I think the biggest story I've ever covered probably was the death of Ayrton Senna at Imola. Mm. In, so to be at that race in 1994, that was a huge, huge story and a, you know something that had an, a, a really big impact on my career, really. Sure, sure. Yeah. And um, I mean, because when they, you've mentioned these, they've been these, mass, these events are massive. Do you ever watch them back again? Do you ever watch it again and sort of look at it? Because you're watching it now as a punter, relaxed, maybe in your lounge, rather yeah. than watching it as a journalist. Yeah. You know what? I don't... It's a good question. I don't I don't often watch them back. I mean, I've, you come across them inevitably. So, for instance, the, those final moments of that Champions League final uh, in 1999 when United won, those you see those replayed. But I don't often sit down and watch moments and watch things back I, I don't know why actually it's an interesting thing I think maybe because there's such um being actually being in a stadium or an arena is so uh, is such a sort of personal thing I think that um it almost tends to um I find sometimes watching things back tends to suck the life out of them a little right. bit so yeah. for instance when I when I was a kid I watched I went to I wanted to see, desperately wanted to see, um, in 1982, so I'd be 16, Italy won the World Cup in the, the summer of 82. And I absolutely loved that tournament and I loved that Italy team. And the following, a few months later, Juventus played against Aston Villa at, at Villa Park. And a lot of the, the players who were in that Italy team played for Juventus. So I was desperate to go and see them. And um, I got a ticket for the game. And... I was standing behind the goal at the uh, the Holt end, actually, um, at Villa. And Paolo Rossi, who'd been the hero of that World Cup for Italy, scored in scored very early on with the header at the end that I was at. And I remember even then, um, actually, again, this sounds really pretentious, but <laughs> I didn't want. I, di- I had that pic- I had that image in my mind of of him scoring that goal. And I didn't want to watch it back on TV because I just wanted it yeah. to be my. I didn't want. I didn't want the image that everybody else saw to be superimposed on on the particular image that I'd yeah. seen. You know, I say I know that sounds pretentious. No, it doesn't. But I, I can of, understand that. Yeah. And I was thinking because we've got a DVD of 2012 London Olympics. Right. Yeah. It hasn't even come out the packet. No. Because. Yeah. I don't know. It's not the same, is it? Thinking it's not. About it. No, yeah. I can. I, no, I can relate to that. Yeah. And actually, 2012. Sorry, I go on and on, but 2012 <laughs> was an 2012 in terms of a, uh, uh, an event. Uh, an event was just an amazing thing, and that's good because that was my next question. So you've answered it. So it was. It was because of the organisation, because it was in England, because it was just. I think a lot of things, and I think that particularly with what has happened since, I think that at that time it felt. It really, and I, we're not very good at this in Britain, and possibly particularly in England. But it felt like a really great time to be British. It did. I think, and I'll it never felt, forget it, the announcement. And I was on air actually at a local station in Oxford, and we were watching the guy's lips who made the announcement. I can't remember. Was it Paris? Yeah. Thought, Is his mouth going to go? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it was just an amazing moment. Yeah, and you're right; it was just fabulous. Just... It felt like it was the to me. It felt like it was the best of us. You know, it felt like it was it was multicultural. Um, you know, the volunteers were amazing. I never thought. You know, I thought we'd. I, I didn't think we'd pull off the volunteer thing, but we were. 
the volunteers are amazing the the crowds you know our appetite for sport was fantastic we filled everything um yeah no empty seats were there no it was just it was absolutely it was just brilliant from start to finish to say that the way we organized it the the spirit in which we did it it actually surprised me and in a in a really good way and i thought god this is like um a kind of this could be a gateway for us for our society you know it felt like everything was coming together and unfortunately mm. unfortunately it feels to me actually that in some ways that was maybe this is from a t- particularly from a somebody who's interested in sport it feels like that was a high point and that we've we've fallen away we've from peaked. that we need another olympic game, so <laughs> yeah, another bid yeah who's the best person to interview that time and time again you think i'm gonna get a good interview out of him or her uh well, actually, the 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 Olympic Olympic rowers were always really really good. Um, Interview people, them after a gold win. <laughs> yeah, people like James Cracknell, I I always love speaking to um, Matt Pinson. Um, they were terrific um, footballers. I mean, actually, Jamie Carragher was always great. Uh, it's interesting. Jamie Carragher was always great. Gary Neville was always really good. I did Gary Neville's column for a while at the time, so it was never it wasn't a surprise to me when he became a big hit with um Sky because he's an incredibly always been a really articulate uh kind of kind of guy. So um And somebody that you were really looking forward to interviewing is a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> you can pass on that one, it's fine. No, I, um I'm just trying to think really. I mean Actually, I did an interview a couple. Of, usually, when you sit down with somebody, you know, a you're grateful for them giving you time, so you tend to look for the best. I did an interview recently, with, a few weeks ago, with Jerry Rice, the who was a very famous um, American footballer, and he got quite um, irritable early on for what I <laughs> could see as no real apparent reason, and I'd say that was slightly surprising. And sometimes it's when people ask. It happens less now, but people in the old days, people used to ask for money. And um, I had a thing with actually Dion Dublin, who's a very nice guy, I think. But um, when he played for Coventry, and his manager was a guy called Phil Neal, I remember I'd arranged to go and see him. And Phil Neal came out, and again, this was old school when he used to hang around in car parks and things outside training grounds. I remember Phil Neal, it was a Tuesday, and I remember Phil Neal saying to me, Dion doesn't do interviews on Tuesdays and, <laughs> and then Dion wanted some money and you know it was kind of it was a bit of, that was a bit of a rigmarole but generally I think when you sit down with sportsmen or women it's it's rewarding I don't know if you've got on the the favorite interview and I, you in, can tell me that in some ways in some ways it was but the one I think that gave me the most thrill was when I worked in motor racing and I think I mentioned earlier, Nigel Mansell was um, driving in uh, a series called IndyCar in the States. He drove for a team called Newman Haas, which was owned by a guy called Carl Haas and Paul Newman, the film star. And Paul Newman, one of my, if I hadn't been a, if I hadn't been a sports writer, I, I would love to, I'm not clever enough, but I would love to have been a film reviewer. So I, I absolutely love film and Paul Newman was one of my oh. all-time heroes, also one of my mum's all-time heroes. And so... He was pretty reclusive, didn't really into interviews. But at that time, I was, a, I was working for the Times. B, I was doing some stuff for 
a BBC magazine called um, Top Gear, which had just started then, has only just started the Top Gear magazine. And so I was able to hit him with a few sort of different things that, and in the end, reluctantly, he, he agreed to do it. So that was... Um, that was a huge thrill for me to Aww. interview Paul Newman, I must admit. Yeah. I bet, yeah, your, your mum loved it yeah, as well. Yeah, And um, you must get into some weird situations as well. You must th- There must be times when you're thinking, I don't know, you're in this, like you'd say, there's lots of car parks on Tuesday yeah. night, but there must be some situations you think, what am I doing? Where am I? I just wonder if there's any springs to mind where you're, it's freezing cold or, <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of freezing cold, I'm yeah. sure. But some, some interviewing someone in a, in a peculiar You've probably been in, in a lot of, uh, well, a lot, a lot of football grounds, but weirder places than that. Yeah, I, um, I remember, I remember during the South African World Cup. Um, so I think I've got this right. So that was 2010. Uh, I think Diego Maradona was the manager of Argentina at that time, um, and there was just a total madness um, around him. And I think they were training Argentina's training base was up in Pretoria, and we. I remember getting into the, there was this craziness around getting into a training session. It should have been simple, you know, but, um, and in the end, some of us got smuggled into the training session in the back of an ambulance, um, a South African ambulance. It was really, it felt totally sort of, um, totally mad. Yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, if we were to look back on all some really big pivotal moments for you to to where you are now, mm. um, I mean, getting getting your degree, but then deciding to go and study the journalism and, and having a teacher who who really well it was quite quite tough on you, but yeah. really sort of fired you up and, and got you to do what you were doing, and then realizing when you were in Liverpool that maybe you didn't want to do some of these stories and, and your love of sport then connected. Yeah. With, and, and talking about the death of Ayrton Senna, but then, mm. those were some really big moments for you, weren't all they? Those, all those would have been pivotal moments for me, yeah. I think yeah. getting into Cardiff mm. in the first place, into that journalism course, was a pivotal moment because I think that nearly didn't happen. I remember seeing by mistake my um, report from the interview to get into Cardiff and they weren't massively impressed. So... I think I squeezed into that course and I think things might have been different if I hadn't, you know, I don't know what would have happened because as I said, having access to that teaching made a huge impression on me. Actually working in Liverpool where, you know, I learned there were people on the news desk at the Echo and the Post actually who were incredibly good journalists and taught me, you know, an amazing amount um, of stuff about journalism, about you know, just small things, I think, um, that seem like small things, but they're just important things. Like when I used to go to inquests, the guy on the, the old news editor at the Echo would say, take some copies of the Echo with you for the coroner. And I used to think, what, you know, why? what's the point? Why? why? I felt a bit embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. But he said, they said, well, they, everybody likes to see their name in the newspaper. And, you know, this guy, I'd take the... And he'd start leafing through to what, look at the reports of the inquest from the previous day and I don't know those kind of things of just uh, human um, I suppose they're man management things really but human interest mm-hmm. the way that people just um, there's a line actually in a Paul Newman movie I think The Colour of Money where he says he's a student of human moves and I think that journalists have to be that in some ways they have to be students of human moves and um whatever kind of area you you work in and um 
So being at the Echo and Daily Post taught me an awful lot. And yes, I think it was one pivotal moment, I suppose, in my career in terms of importance of giving me a platform, I suppose, it would be the death of Ayrton Senna. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And anyone wanting to get into this now, because it's very different, but get maybe loads of experience and, and listen to teachers that gave the same sort of advice. That, they, that advice is still very relevant now, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think kind of, you know, this is, is a, sounds a bit bankrupt in some ways, but do the kind of thing that I didn't do <laughs> and show commitment because I think it is harder to get in now. Mm-hmm. That's my impression. You know, there's... It's funny because journalism, I think, is sometimes, to put it kindly, sort of lightly regarded. Um, people's journalists' ethics and morals sometimes lightly regarded. And yet it seems to me there's even there's more competition to get into journalism now than there ever has been. Maybe that's because opportunities are fewer than they used to be. But I would, because of that, I'd certainly say you, you've got to show commitment. It's tougher. So you've got to show commitment from an earlier age mm. and just... just make sure you do that and I don't know I think it comes down to the old thing of do something that you love you know because if you do something you love you'll be good at it and um, you you know you've got to be trying try and be prepared to put the hours in because I think one one other thing that I learned and again it's a cliche but certainly somebody of my talent or lack of talent whatever there are no shortcuts you know you put I put a lot of hours in when I worked in Liverpool I just I worked all the hours God sends in Liverpool because I loved it it, because I loved it and because there was the opportunity to do it because I could work on the Daily Post on my regular shift in the morning and then I could do um, an extra shift you know you get 60 quid or whatever but then do an extra shift on the Echo on Echo subs in the afternoon or or the other way around actually do come in early to do a shift on the Echo and then do my regular shift in the afternoon because the Daily Post was a morning paper but you know so literally working mm-hmm. all, the, all well not literally all the hours got sense but I was working a lot of hours and I think again that you know you've got to try and be prepared to do that and and do what you love and you love your football my daughters love uh, football too and they wanted to know what's your sort of favourite sport to cover I wonder what's next you know if you're going to stick with football or you'd like to do other sports I think if you do sport in this country you, you've got football is going to be a big part of it. I mean, I'm lucky now in that I'm a my job title is chief sports writer, so it means I get to do I do get to do other sports. I've just been in Japan for a month for rugby, but you're always going to do football if you're a sports writer in this country. If you're a general sports writer, which I am, then football is going to dominate your diary basically. But I mean, I you know next week I'm going to Saudi Arabia for four days for a boxing you know Anthony Joshua world title fight so so sometimes those things crop up as well but by and large football and I love I love covering football really yeah. football boxing and tennis I suppose my favorite things to write about and it must be so exciting when they announce when another world cup's coming up and you just think oh, I'm gonna might be going there or you know yeah. Wimbledon's coming around again it's it's a fabulous job to have thank Absolutely. you so much for talking to me it's fascinating what you do thank you so much it's a pleasure real pleasure thank you for um, thank you for having me thanks so much to Oliver for taking the time to talk to me you can follow him on Twitter at 
Ollie Holt 22 and you can follow us too at Where Go Right. If you love your sport we've got commentator Rob Walker and Test Match Specials Henry Moran on season one of the pod. Uh, you can subscribe and rate us on Podbean, iTunes and Spotify. Uh, thanks to Megan for brilliant production as always and Laura Shipsey for the music. We'll see you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes, so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your creativity and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right.